Welcome back to the Redneck Tech Podcast brought to you by Diamondback Covers. This is going to be episode 35. I decided I'm going to start doing a little intro for each one of these so you can kind of hear what they're about if you don't like reading the description. been listening to a bunch of podcasts and turns out the better ones all do this. So I want to be one of the better ones. So on this podcast, I'm going to be talking to a good friend of mine named Tony Khalil. Tony is based out of Springfield, Missouri. He's actually from Mississippi, which I learned in this podcast. Tony has a company called Khalil Media. Uh, I met him actually when he worked for Bass Pro Shops in Calhoun filming a duck hunting, deer hunting trip with the Habit back in the day. And I uh, really liked the way I operate, really liked him as a guy, as a creative, as a as a dude really. And uh, really love to get other people's perspectives on the podcast, so I thought he'd be a really good one to get on. So uh, I hope you like Tony as much as I do, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Right here, right here, right here, right here. You want it? Yeah. Well, Tony, what's up, buddy? How you doing, Caleb? Good, man. How is it in beautiful Springfield, Missouri right now? You know, it is sunny and about 65 degrees. I went out this morning and did a little morel hunting with a buddy of mine. So we've got a good uh, good mess to fry up, and I'm looking forward to it today, but it's doing awesome in Springfield. That is another reason I love the Midwest is morel mushrooms. If you don't know what morel mushrooms are, you have to check them out. They are, that is, I don't know which what would be more popular in your opinion, morel mushroom hunting or shed hunting. Ooh, man. Because there's a lot of people that mushroom hunt that have nothing to do with shed hunting. Right, they'll, they'll, they'll be morel hunting sea sheds and just pass them up. They don't care. And most oh, yeah. guys... And most guys that are shed hunting, they're, they'll be shed hunting and then walk on top of the morels and they don't even know it. So. Exactly. Well, that we, I mean, when I was when I did stuff with Lee and Tiffany, they used to have morel poachers that would come on a lot of their properties and just hunt morels on whoever's property. They they knew where they were. They would just want wanted morel mushrooms. We we ran into them several times turkey hunting. Had to say, hey, y'all y'all aren't supposed to be here. And they're like, oh, we're just looking for morels. And we're like, okay, well, this isn't your property, and you don't have permission to be here. So yeah, yeah it's, it's a, for absolute yeah. fighting words. Well, that's yeah, and that's the thing is like people don't know how good they are, and they and oh, a lot of people when you say you're hunting mushrooms, well, what the heck are you hunting mushrooms for? So, as someone from the Midwest, explain a, explain to us what morel mushrooms are. So morel mushrooms only kind of come up uh, during the spring months, soon as the soil temperature gets around fifty degrees uh, for consistent, probably uh, two or three days. Uh, it needs to be a little moisture in the air as well. Uh, so there's quite a bit of things that have to go right for these morels to come up. And there's a bit of mystery to them, to where they go, to where they grow up and where they are. And uh, People have spots that they've been literally hunting for years that they never tell anybody about. I'll tell you what, morels are so popular that even Johnny Morris literally had his friends go out and find morels and he cooked them for all these Legends of Golf Tour that's going on during the spring. Mm-hmm. Like that was, that was a huge deal. He's yeah. literally smiling ear to ear. To share to share these morels with the top golfers of the world, and that's so, what and that's what you hunt them for is to eat them. That's right, hundred percent. Yeah, they are. I'd never had them until actually. I think we cooked them at Lee and Tiff's. I'm pretty sure that's the first time I'd had them, and they are excellent. But yes, it, the, the the mystery and the mystique in finding them and where they come from and what exactly I guess they are is kind of half the fun, I guess. Oh, absolutely. And you only have a short amount of time, you know, really the lifespan of a morel is about, 
nine to 10 days, depending on the weather. See, I'm so learning, I'm learning a yeah. lot because I did not know any of that. I knew that they came up pretty much in the Midwest and you have to go for, find them. And usually they're around a lot of like deadfall and yep. things like that. But outside of that, I knew they tasted good. That's about all I knew about morels because we don't have that down here in Georgia. We don't have a lot of awesome things that y'all have in the Midwest. I, I'll tell my dad every time we get to talking about hunting, I'm like, dad, why did you make me grow up in this godforsaken <laughs> place? Because for what you and I do, it is one other than Florida, it is the worst place to live. And um, which I mean, there's so many hunting companies and productions that are based out of Georgia. I guess it's an okay place, but where you live, Springfield, which I love, Springfield, spent a ton of time in Springfield doing work with JP and Bass Pro. I love that area. I just love how I think more than anything, I love the area because you're within striking distance of anything you could ever want to do: ducks, deer, turkeys hogs um you know you're only you know eight to ten hours from awesome elk hunting out west you're within driving distance where i'm flying distance from a lot of those things that's absolutely the truth it's an incredible place to live so yeah so did you so um tell me about did you grow up in springfield or around that area no actually i didn't i actually came from uh the south of what you spoke of earlier i came from mississippi oh okay Uh, See, I grew up in uh, Yazoo City, Mississippi, which is where the kind of the hilly area meets the delta in Mississippi. So I grew up in a similar area to to you, uh, except we got, I think, probably a little more farmland than you guys had. Um, And we've got, of course, tons of deer, turkey, squirrel, dove, duck, goose, tons of fishing, uh, that type of thing. I mean, it really is a sportsman yeah. paradise, even though I know that's Florida's uh, pretty much what you're, namesake. Pretty much but, what you're doing, you're solidifying what I just said about how much Georgia sucks. Yeah, well, pretty much. Anyway, so Tony, how did you and I meet? So I think you and I, uh, we met at, uh, I think it was, we were shooting for The Habit back mm-hmm. in 2014. Yeah, in Calhoun. Uh, in Calhoun, yeah. Uh, so we met up there and we were trying to, get some ducks and some geese to cooperate uh, for us on camera. And I think we were also trying to do a few lifestyle shoots mm-hmm. for openers for the TV yeah, show. You were, you were there with one of my favorite people. And I would assume one of your favorite people in the whole wide world, Mr. Chris Irwin. Oh yeah. Oh, Chris Irwin, man. Yeah. I've He's, had him, I've had him on the podcast twice. He's, he is, he, Chris is one of my favorite people in the whole world. And one of the, and, and the thing is, is when you talk to Chris, you better be ready to talk. He loves to talk, but he's also <laughs> one of the most full of knowledge guys when it comes to photography and then this business and networking. He's like, you will not find someone that does not love Chris Irwin. Absolutely. Absolutely the truth. Uh, you know, he's been in the business for well over 20 plus years, uh, not only with Bass Pro, but just in the industry for hunting, fishing, outdoor world. Uh, he lives and breathes. Uh, collecting content uh, for the outdoor and also sharing the outdoors with everyone else. And he's an absolute perfectionist. Yes, absolute. He would, he spends he spends more time on one picture in editing than I probably have on a complete edit for a video. I'm sure. <laughs> um, but so but you worked you worked for Bass Pro for how long? So yeah, I worked for Bass Pro Shops for uh, a little over four years. A little over four years, and what did you do there? So my initial, um, my initial position there was just as an assistant. Uh, I came on to help with, the, with all the tracker boat shoots that were going on because uh, Bass Pro Shop, of course, owns Tracker, which is now White River Marine Group. Uh, but they, uh, they shoot 
and have to capture content for all the boat lines that, that, that are owned underneath that namesake. And uh, I started off with them in a hot summer of in July of 2013, I think, and, as a boat grip and assistant for them. And uh, I worked really hard and, and tried to be a good team member and just being an absolute sponge and a servant. And they gave me a better opportunity to be um, kind of a full-time assistant with them. And so they hired me on to take care of their equipment uh, with the Bass Pro Video Department and also be an assistant for them. And I worked in that position for a little over a year and a half. And they saw that I had a lot of potential and also just a lot of um, opportunity for them to grow their 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 department. And so they put me on as a videographer editor. Um, and so then I was basically in that position until I, until I left Bass Pro in 2017. So what are you doing now? So I am now, I've started my own uh, media company called Khalil Media. And basically I am trying to tell people stories, uh, whether that's uh, telling people stories and trying to sell product or trying to sell an idea or, or shooting for TV shows, things of that nature as well. I'm a licensed drone pilot. Um, and so basically been doing that for the last uh, eight months so far. How's everything going, man? I know you were telling me about some projects before we got started that you're working on. I don't know how much of that you can divulge, but what all you got going on right now? Sure. Um, well, you know, eight months in, I would have never, ever guessed that uh, I would be able to work with some of the companies that I have been able to work with. But one of the companies is is True Timber Camo, um, which is owned um, by the Sellers family, uh, also has some ownership with uh, the Morrises, and then also, I believe, Dale Earnhardt Jr. And so I, we put a 30-second spot together. Uh, for commercial use with Dale Hart Jr. and some of their new product lines. We started that shoot in December, and we're about to wrap it up, and it will air the end of the third quarter of 2018. Um, so that's one of the one of the pieces we've been working on. That sounds, working like a, on. sounds like a big project. Yeah, it was a lot of fun, uh, a pretty big piece to, to bite off and chew, but uh, it's been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of learning and a lot of just – Honestly, God give me the grace to get it done, and uh, it's been we've been very fortunate in that way. Um, I also have been shooting with uh, the Bass Pros TV show. Uh, there is a gentleman named Dave Appleton who is producing that shoot, uh, that TV show now, and I've been his second shooter. So I do specialty underwater, um, do second angle for them. Do also do special sh- specialty shots, time lapses, slow motion, and then also aerial coverage for them. So, okay, well, that's that's a perfect segue into, I have this question a little bit further down in my notes, but is, you know, I've done a whole podcast about what do you see as the major difference between a cameraman and producer, and pretty much for a television show to see value in hiring a second shooter to do exactly what you just said that, you, that you're doing as getting specialty shots, underwater, drone, is essentially you're there to get those details and to tell that story. So kind of, you know, if you can kind of try and, I don't know, explain to me in your own words, because, I mean, I've done a whole podcast about it. What do you see as a difference between a cameraman and a producer? Because obviously your job is to tell that story that that main camera, that main content camera isn't getting. So what's what's the difference? You know, what are you doing as a producer that you wouldn't be doing as a cameraman? main camera operator at that point who is really dictating how the story is going to be told, right? 
uh, he is the one asking all the right questions. He's the one that has already gone through with the the talent. Uh, for instance, last week we were on a shoot with Rick Klun. Um, he is a multi time uh, winner for Bassmasters Classics. I think he's actually in the lead with Kevin Van Dam as well. So he's literally the elite of the elite for fishing. But he's the one that goes through and develops uh, the stories that are, it's more of a teaching program is what this one is. So they're going through all the different types of um, lessons that they really want to take. And and he literally goes through all 15 different or 13 different um, shows that we're going to do. He figures out all the information, the content, how we're going to ascertain that, what questions we want to ask, which baits we're going to use, uh, which baits we can use with those particular pros and and all the things that goes with the sponsorships and everything else that goes with that. So, you know, he's really, uh, the producer is going to be the one that really steers that ship into what the actual end story or the lesson is going to be. Um, If you think about that and you're on – Say you're on a shoot like we were, we fished for nearly five hours and didn't catch the right type of fish that we wanted to catch. You're you're going through lots of uh, different scenarios, different ways to ask questions, different questions to ask that are going to be able to really hold up the idea that you're trying to teach. And you're doing that constantly. There's your brain's constantly going on. What's next? What's going to be the right way to do this? Me as a viewer, am I going to be able to understand what this guy's teaching me by what you just said and correcting that pro that has been doing it for 40 years and go ahead and, uh, how about we, I think there's a better way to say that, um, mm-hmm. things of that nature. Yeah. So you think about all that comparatively to someone that's like in my position with him in that, in that deal, that's also getting all the underwater, all the arrow, yeah. thinking about the creative aspect of artistically, uh, coming up with things that are going to be entertaining, uh, different angles. It, when you do all that together with one person, which some does happen, I've had to do that in my shows of my own, where you're the you're the producer, you're the second shooter, you're the drone operator, you're the driver, you're everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're going to get less product a lot of times. Um, you can get a much better product with a team, and I, that's one thing I've definitely learned. As much as I would like to be able to do it all, mm-hmm. I can, but yeah. it just won't be as good. Yeah, well, or it will take twice as long. Absolutely. <laughs> well, so in in the in your in the process of filming, and this is what I have, I think a heart that guys have a hard time grasping in the process of filming a say your your fishing show that you're doing with Appleton. How many times? And I, this is a I think a really good way to demonstrate the difference between a cameraman and a producer. How many times are you talking through a scenario, stopping your talent and telling them, "Hey, is there a better way we can say this?" or can you do that again? Can I get a tight shot of this? How many times are you essentially, I'm air quotes here, producing the different pieces of content? Well, um, the way that Dave and I really try to set it up is that he will take it in sections. So, you know, he's doing that aspect where if there's something that didn't come off right, he'll say, hey, let's do a lead in to that fish that we just caught, right? Um, so he'll he'll talk about the method and things of that nature and go into it. After he gets done with his section, then I will cut in and say, all right, let me uh, let me do a tight shot on the reel and the hook set. Let's reset that, make sure that we moved in the right position so it looks right on the wide as it goes into the tight, things of that nature. Yeah. Hey, let's yeah. let's get that fish. So it's it's always honestly yeah. like yeah. it's every aspect of the, of the story that you're you're stopping and, and putting that into place. Um, 
if that answers your question. Yeah, yeah but it's, absolutely. It's constantly. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's all the time, constantly. You know, and that and that's yeah. when I'm trying when I try and explain what the difference between producing and being a camera guy. Camera guy stands there and films everything and essentially vomits through the lens. When yeah. you're producing, you you know, and this is kind of a great segue into my next question. You know what you want to get to get it to the edit bay. You know the pieces of the puzzle that you need to get. You know Absolutely. that you know something can be said one way and it can be better in editing this way. Or a lot of times I'll tell somebody, Hey, I, you know, tell me about yourself or whatever. And they'll say, well, you know, how long do you want it to be? Or they'll start talking and I'll get them to do it again. I'll say, Hey, can you do that again for me? Can you do it in two sentences? Can you do it in three sentences? Because I know when somebody rambles for, you know, 10 or 15 sentences, I'm never going to be able to use that in editing. Nope. I might be able to use piece parts and pieces of it, but having the, you know, the editing mindset and the production mindset, I know that I can say, Hey, can you do that again? Or can I get, can you hold still? Let me get a tight shot. The way I explain it to a lot of people is if it takes you an hour to do a task, if you're filming it, plan on an hour and a half to two hours, because there's going to be that much stopping that much redoing that much, you know, explanation that much setup, you know, all that type stuff. So essentially it takes time, but that's what it takes to, to make, to make a good show, to make a good production, to create cool content. Right. Absolutely. Well, see, well, that, so that's, that was what my point was. My segue is how has learning to edit or becoming an editor changed the way that you film? Oh, so, you know, for me, when I when I started filming or I started working even with Bass Pro working in film at all, like I didn't start as an editor. I started as a photographer, to be honest with you. Um, and so learning and sitting in the edit bay, watching how the how how the sausage was made, as well as getting in there and shooting things, and then going in and editing it myself. You will always be a better filmer, better shooter. As, as soon as you get in the edit bay, hundred uh, percent, because you will know exactly what you have missed. And what you should have gotten, and also what you could have gotten, and to that, make the story, and, and how to save yourself so much time. Oh, and 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 your client, honestly, you save yeah. time with both those people because you don't want to get worn out. I mean, you are going to get worn out, but you don't want to wear out to your talent beyond you know his his measure, mm-hmm. which they do, and you got to manage that too as a producer. Yeah, um, but yeah, absolutely. The more time you spend in the edit bay, the 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 more education that you're going to have in trying to figure out what you need to get to make this story the best it can be and also a complete story that mm-hmm. makes sense and compels people to do whatever it is you're trying to get them to do. Well, I assume you do the same thing as I do is when you're shooting, you're editing it in your head. You know, Absolutely. You know the shots that you need to get. And, you know, before I started editing to now when I edit pretty much everything that I shoot, I would I would venture to guess if I had to put a number value on it and you can you can give me your thoughts on this. I bet I shoot half to a quarter as much footage as I used to because now I know what I'm going to need and what I'm not going to need. I know what clips are going to get used and which ones I I don't even need to waste my time with. Yeah. I think the, the biggest thing is that you develop your own, you know, really your own mental eye of, of what you want to, what you want to tell, what Caleb wants to tell in comparison to what Tony wants to tell. Mm-hmm. And they are two different stories. Uh, we are two different story- storytellers. Yeah, no doubt. Um, yeah. And you will ultimately be able to go start mapping that out in your head prior to um, where otherwise, if you never had edited before and never really spend time in the edit bay, because I've talked to guys that are like, man, I just don't like spending time editing. I'm like, 
that's where all the story comes together. Yeah, exactly. That's really where it's at. Well, that's I mean, another. You, well, that's another beautiful thing too. Just like you just said, is I'll tell a different story than you will. That's mm-hmm. another great thing about collaborating with somebody or having a team is I'm going to see something you're not going to see. You're going to see something I'm not going to see. You're going to tell it one way. I'll tell it another way. And then mm-hmm. once you get in editing, you have different perspectives, different takes on certain things that you might not have seen yourself until you get in editing or vice versa. You know, I'm going to be able to, I'll have an experience. I'll have more experience with this thing than you will. And you'll have more experience in this thing than I will. Like if I were going to shoot with you, a fishing shoot, I have a little bit of fishing knowledge and experience. I would assume you have a lot more than I do. So that would be one of those things to where I would have to use you as a crutch. And I would probably ask questions that you would never ask because you already know them. You would assume, well, I already know that. Whereas I would say, hey, you know, why is he doing that? Oh, well, he's doing that because of this. But that might be something our viewer needs to know and vice versa. So it's one of those things to where, where if you can collaborate with somebody, but which, like you said, most of the time right now, I'm working completely by myself. Everything is shooting, editing, producing, you know, talent. And, you know, I'm handling all that, which... I, I like that part of the way just because I'm a control freak and I know what I'm going to get when I do it. And I don't have to rely on someone else, but at the same time, you know, being at sub seven for so long and working with guys that really knew what they were doing and having a great team, it makes a better product if you have a budget to work to warrant that. Absolutely. Yeah. But that's, that's something that I've learned that I can tell a story one way or I can shoot it one way and I can hand it to an editor like Nate at sub seven. I can shoot it one way and he's such a great editor and such a great storyteller. Storyteller, he can make what I had in my head that much better. Um, but just like you said, in you know, editing gets monotonous, but it is it is where you get to see it all come together. Yes, sir. So I get I get told this all the time. People tell me, "Well, your job's awesome. You got the best job in the world." What's your take on that? As in uh, doing what we do. As, as in as in. The job that you get to do, get on a fishing boat and go film fishing, go on hunting trips, film a commercial for True Timber and get to meet a bunch of famous people. Like, you know, my take on it is, yeah, I I love my job, but there's also a lot of parts of it that people will never see and that they they'll never understand. So kind of give me your take on that. Absolutely. You know, and I think that I absolutely love what I get to do. Um, You know, when I cause I also shoot a lot of boats too. I shoot a lot of boats for track and Marine and, you know, we shoot every morning from 4am. We get ready, get on the dock, get everything set up, uh, hit the water as soon as the light touches the water. Um, and honestly being up there shooting, waking up, seeing every sunrise, uh, getting experience that, uh, every sunset that we'd shoot things of that nature, same as it is out in the field where we were shooting, fishing shows or out doing hunting shows or whatever else, being out in the outdoors and being able to tell that part of the story is, is an absolute privilege. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's a ton of fun. It really is. Um, I worked a lot of different jobs in my lifetime, but this was definitely the most fun and adventurous that I've ever been on. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there's tons of behind the scenes that you never see though. They always see our Instagram post or our 32nd edit that we put six months into. Right. Yeah. Um, and it, it, there's a, there's a lot of work to it. And that's honestly what, what merits, you know, uh, the, the, mo- the money that we can make if we, we make good decisions uh, and can get the right clients. Um, but it, it also is the detriment, too, if you have clients that aren't paying well, but they're the only clients you can get. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so 
but at the same time, is it worth it? Absolutely. Um, I can't believe that it's, um, I've had the opportunity that I have for so long and I, I can't wait to, to continue to do it. Oh, I feel the same way. So you've been on a lot of trips, done a lot of fun stuff. What's, what's some of the crazier things you've had happen on a filming trip or on a hunting trip where you were running camera? Sure. Um, you know, honestly, <clears throat> a lot of my stuff, a lot of my fun stuff has been shooting boats. Uh, cause just a lot of moving parts. There's, we're doing boat chases on the front noses of nitro, you know, Z 21s doing 60 miles an hour. And you're literally on the nose, uh, standing up, trying to film people going fast, uh, chasing people with helicopters. That's been a ton of fun. Uh, going out to almost, well, basically 20 miles from Cuba doing deep, deep sea fishing and catching great fish and, and, and also catching tarpon in the bay and being able to catch those moments that are just, you don't want to forget them. And you're so mm-hmm. glad that you even got to see it, not alone be the guy behind the camera taking the picture uh, or taking the video at the time. Uh, but honestly, you know, one of the funnier moments that we had was actually with you when we were shooting the habit back with JP. Uh, I had probably been flying a drone for two years by then. And we were flying that Phantom, I think it was a Phantom 2, maybe, mm-hmm. with a GoPro hooked onto it. Yeah. And something went funny on it, and that thing was going down. And all of a sudden, we're trying to land it on your guys's, on the, I think on the Habit Boys boat, that mm-hmm. we were out in the middle of a duck hunt hole. And this thing's, this thing's going to drown. And here comes John Paul, friggin' huffing it to catch this thing. And then just right as it's about to fall in the water, right as everything's we're about to lose everything, he just snatches it. <laughs> yeah, I know that is, I, that is, and honestly, the story I was going to tell is about JP catching a drone, but not that one. We, <laughs> we had, we had a similar thing happen when we were in Venice, Louisiana, we were going out to go bow fishing for hammerheads and uh, we were on the airboats and we were just getting a bunch of, you know, tracking shots with our Inspire. And, um, and, uh, I wasn't flying. Zach was actually flying and I was on the other boat. So he was chasing our boat. Then he was chasing the boat he was on. I was on the boat with Chuck and John. And then it was him, JP and our guide. And I think somebody else, I can't remember. We're on the other boat. And I, we, only thing we can figure is we flew by a guard tower and those guard towers have all kinds of crazy electronics and this, that, and the other and this drone tried to start going home. And where we took off with the boats, home is a long way away. And so this thing's going crazy. And essentially, Zach's fighting it on the drone. And they're chasing this drone down in the airboat. <laughs> and J- JP gets up in the, the deck that we film out of, out of this airboat, and literally yanks this thing out of the air. And they can't get it and almost before it takes a dunk. And, you know, when they take a dunk in freshwater, sometimes you can save them. When they take a dunk in salt water, they're done. done. So this was in you know brackish water, so it would have been done. And they can't once if JP catches it, makes an, an awesome catch again. Second time he saved a drone from dying. They, they they can't even get the blades to stop spinning. They have to yank the battery out of this thing as it's spinning. Um, I mean, we've had some crazy things happen with drones and inspires. I mean, we crashed that one at Bass Pro. Pretty much all our crazy drone stories involve JP though. Yeah, Which, it's, maybe uh, he's the problem. He's a common denominator for yeah. sure. I think he even crashed one out in Australia on the shoot. Well, but I think he was trying to trim trees. Well, with he that told one. me he told me he took one to Arizona. He took his inspired Arizona and was flying it, you know, way around these pretty canyons, and it went out of signal, and he thought he lost it. So he hit the home button, 
And he said it was like five or six minutes later. He he just written it off as it was gone. And he heard that thing buzzing back and it came back and landed. I was wow. Like, I was like, you are the only person that has the luck for that to happen. If it would have been my drone or a company's drone, it would be somewhere in the middle of those canyons never to be found again. Risky business. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, another fun one we had, uh, we were out, let's see, near Fort Myers, Florida, doing a saltwater fishing shoot um, for, I think, the new Mako, yeah, a new Mako skiff that we had. And we were basically in between um, what's called North Captiva and Kay Acosta. And this is called Redfish Pass, if I do believe uh, that's the name of it. Well, anyways, this past that season that we were there there was a basically a sand barge that would uh as the tide went um tide went in it went up and you could you know dock a boat there and kind of have a cool looking uh, place to shoot boats because just really unique it's just just a little piece of sand spit of sand out there in the middle of the ocean so anyways we were shooting this giant storm coming in uh, i believe from the east um, it's like black skies, lightning going on, but you can imagine this beautiful white boat getting front lit from the West and lightning's going on. The guys on the, on the front of the boat fishing, it's looking great. And we get wrapped up and we're like, all right, well, time to go home. And we went through this bay to even get there. And it only takes like 35 to 40 minute boat ride to get there on like a 60 horse. Well, that flat water now is about three and a half to four foot waves. Mm-hmm coming at us yeah and so we spent the next four hours trying to maneuver our way back uh to the boat ramp that day uh through that mess and it was it just beat the snot out of you we were holding on like people getting sick we've got you know models people have no business being out there and then of course all of us that with all of our gear all of everything we got uh out in the middle of this this giant bay uh, it's actually called um, maybe Pine Pine Bay Pine Bay. Mm-hmm. Anyways, uh, Pine Island Sound maybe that's what it is. But anyways, uh, it's it's literally a four hour journey to get back to it was. It was supposed to be a thirty minute journey. And the gentleman that was actually out there with us, Mister Mike Fuller, he's kind of the the boat shoot king of the South. Uh, he's been doing it for nearly fifty years. We got out right past Fort Myers, past the bridge at, at Lower Captiva. And he said that was the worst water he has ever seen in his entire life. And he's been, I mean, he's spent countless, countless hours and lifetimes fishing, shooting boats out in the salt water. Um, but we finally got back there, just everybody's beating on the last bit of gas, trying to get back. And it was, it was a rough, it was a rough deal. So, I mean, the weather really caught us and it was, it was a pretty risky spot. Um, but that, that was probably a pretty sketchy one that we went on and, and it was a, Something I'll never forget, and I'll get to you if there's a big storm coming from the east when I'm out there, I'm getting my ass back home. Yeah, I heard that. Well, see, you know, it was that same trip where we had the drone mishap that we went out for those sharks, and we got out there, and it was nice water when we got out there. We had to run like 30 miles offshore or something to get to where we were fishing, and it started, you know, started waves getting real bad. And Chance, guy I used to work at Sub 7, and Chuck. We're both blowing chunks, man. Uh, you'd look over and just see mist <laughs> coming out of both of their mouths. And so we were all making fun of them and, you know, trying not to get sick ourselves. And then the weather started getting bad. So we were trying to get back and it was like four and five footers. And we didn't have that far to run when it started happening. But I mean, we got beat to death for about, I would say, 30, 45 minutes. Nothing like you guys. And I got back to that dock and I felt like I'd been in a fight. I felt oh, like yeah. I just went 10 rounds with somebody. 
Oh, and yeah. I look at those boat captains. I'm like, you guys do not make enough money because there, no. there is no way, no way I would go and involve, I would voluntarily go and try and do that every day. Mm-mm. Take guys out in that boat and get beat to death every day and try and stand, just trying to stand up instead of, you know, eating crap every time you hit one of those waves. And then you get a rogue wave. I actually think that's one of the trips we also lost to 300K. It was an Ooh. FS7 or 300K. A big rogue wave came over the front of the boat and soaked one of our cameras. I was actually holding the camera. I can't remember if it was an FS7. Or, I think it was a 300K. But yeah, that was a that was a rough, rough trip on equipment and people. Um, but yeah, I mean, there, I've, I've been a part of some sketchy ones and sketchy places and absolute outfitter horror stories and just... I mean, that comes with the territory. You do this long enough, there's going to be some absolutely nuts. So things happen. But um, I think that adds to it. Oh, yeah. It's part of that adventure for me. Um, I mean, I'm all like, I think there's a picture that someone took of me. I didn't know they were taking it, but I was on the back of the boat and we were going to do a shootout in Miami. And there's some pretty hard eight foot ways. You know, you can't see the boat in front of you as it dips in. And I'm just loving life, smiling ear to ear yelling, hooping, hollering, because it's just, it's just fun. It's mm-hmm. an adventure. And, you know, whether that's some snake swimming between your legs and uh, some mucky spot or, or, uh, or out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean um, filming boats and seeing orca whales pass underneath you. I mean, it's just, you, you, you will never be able to experience something like that unless you take the risk. Well, not only that, that's another thing I love about this job that I haven't, you know, I, I don't, I tell some people, but I don't think I've said it on the podcast and I'm sure you'll agree. This job has warranted me the opportunity to see things and hunt places and do things and, 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 you know, go into events that I would have never been able to go to or see or experience if it wouldn't have been for the job I was doing. Yep. I was telling somebody the other day, I actually went to a dirt track race and I was filming a piece with my uncle who's got a dirt track car. Um, I'm doing a small piece for him and I can't tell you how many times a camera has gotten me into places that I probably shouldn't have been or gotten me out of paying admission, (laughs) gotten me paying admission to get to somewhere. Hey, well I'm media, you know, That's (laughs) right. I've dropped that line quite a few times and it 95% of the time works. Um, yeah, absolutely. yeah, I'm sure anybody that's got, uh, and we used to tell people funny stories too, when they say, Hey, what are you filming? Or, hey, we're, we're filming the, you know, the Sasquatch show, you know, they had a sighting of Sasquatch here last week. So we're out here looking for him. You know, we used to tell them just all kinds of crazy stuff. But, um, <laughs> anyway, the new, the new change, the new trends in this industry, pretty much not, not everything, obviously, cause you're still doing some TV and I'm still dabbling in some TV stuff. A lot of things are going digital, especially with the social media content. You know, content is king. What's your take on on the kind of the shift in the industry right now? Well, uh, clearly, um, I think that the ability to know where your uh, end user or end viewer is going to be uh, is pretty huge. You know, really. Um, with television, of course, you, you have so many issues of people like uh, never really seeing your footage or never seeing your content just because there's so much other stuff to be out there. Um, whereas with uh, digital side of things, social media pieces, YouTube, um, other type of uh, Netflix shows, uh, Carbon TV, 
it's really at their disposal whenever they want to do it, want to watch it. And nine times out of 10, if you have a good show, they're going to watch it. They're going to want to watch it. Um, so being able to really give that end user uh, the ability to watch that, that footage is in, in more and in, in better footage has been very helpful for that industry. I think that being able to uh, also with companies that couldn't afford the airtime, but now can go, um, shoot stuff and put it on YouTube or put it on social media or put it on, like I said, carbon TV or things of that nature. They have more of an opportunity and there's, there's better storytellers. There's better stories. Uh, there's more content that's possibly out there that, that people couldn't afford to even get out there, but now they can. And mm -hmm. so and honestly it's given them, uh, quite a bit of, of opportunity, um, which created, we're, we're seeing it. Well, that we're created, it. created a competition for you and I. Absolutely. Yeah, which I, th I think competition is good. I think it ele elevates everybody. It's the whole reason I do this podcast. That's but, right. But yeah, I mean, that's another thing is like n not only to elevate, but um, always trying to get better and trying to improve. You know, so, so with that being said, like who are some guys that you would consider maybe even mentors or somebody, a company, a person, a show, a production that you look to for inspiration or, you know, something of that nature? You know, I really enjoyed, um, there's a company called Camp 4 Collective. I think I may have shared you some of their information oh, before. Oh, yeah. I've seen, um, yeah, the, the most you know, amazing epic reel that's ever been. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, you know, those boys do a really good job of telling a story. Uh, they really motivate me uh, to, in a lot of ways. I think, one, there's a guy specifically that a follow named Renan Ozturk mm -hmm. and he's a, he's a mountaineer. He's a mountain climber. Um, he is, he has been on some of the highest peaks that have ever been climbed. Well, that's the name uh, of camp, camp four is camp four on Everest. So that's kind of where it comes yeah, from. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but they, uh, he's been, he's been really encouraging to me to watch him. He really is true to his art form. He's also true to the story that is there. There's not a lot of, um, malign that he puts it into it or any type of um he doesn't try to tell what the story's not telling and, and he's not trying to sell anything he's literally just trying to tell the story and he goes to some incredible places because he's so good at what he does um so he really encourages me to 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 really hone on what i'm gifted at you yeah. know and i think that's kind of what renan has done and as it has has really accepted is like you know what i am really good at this and not in a prideful way but you know what i'm gonna I'm going to do my best to get out there and do my best and to go as far as I need to go and go to the where the story is. And I'm going to, I'm going to make some incredible, incredible imagery. And he, and he does that. And I, I really enjoy that. Oh no, I completely agree. Those guys are on another level. But with that being said, it also ha helps to have a real budget because the people they're working with have real, real budgets too. That's right. Yeah. I tell people when I show them that, I'm like, that's what a real budget looks like. <laughs> that when they're yeah. working with people like Apple and Nissan and, uh, you know, places like that that have, that you know, will spend marketing dollars. You know, that's another drawback of this industry is everybody thinks that, which we've kind of only, we've set that precedence. You know, when, when you hired, you know, when some of these companies in this industry hire a marketing director, they're looking for a kid right out of college at $35,000, dollars But you look at a company, you know, you know, what we, you know, a company outside the hunting industry, a marketing executive is a, coveted job you know it's a six-figure oh, job yeah. and i think we've done that to ourselves, and we try and cheapen everything that we do just by some you know some of the people we're hiring to do these jobs and i think that's why there's such a huge turnover in marketing people in this industry 
you know, every time, you know, you talk to somebody, especially with dealing with sponsors and shows, the marketing director this year is probably not going to be him next year because there's so much turnover trying to find the right $45,000 person that's going to move the needle. And marketing is also one of the hardest things to quantify. So it's, um, I don't know, it's a kind of a vicious circle, I guess. It really is. Yeah. And everybody's trying to get that pie, you know, yeah. and that's, that's, that's the deal. Um, because, I mean, the more viewership that they have, the more people are going to watch it and they get paid for it. I mean, yeah. bottom line and potentially whatever they're trying to sell or story they're trying to tell or idea that they're trying to convince people of, they're going to hold that power to, to, to get it there. Yeah. Tony, what's your favorite thing to film? If you had to choose one thing, what would it be? Well, I would love to say that it's waterfowl because I love waterfowl. Oh, hunting, God. But uh, it's it's really hard to hunt and film at the same time. And I think yeah. you and I both know that's yeah. about, it's, no. it's, yeah. especially yeah. when it comes to duck hunting. Yes. It just doesn't happen. So uh, it, it, it's not that. I would say that right now um, I've really enjoyed doing uh, interviews. You know, really, um, I really love shooting interviews because when it comes to like personal stuff, right? And so my, my wife and I currently have been kind of doing a project of our own with our own family. And we have been asking questions, specific questions to our family that aren't going to be malicious or anything of that nature in content, but it's just sharing who they are, who they were, who they were, how they met each other, things of that nature, how they found God, what's their, you know, what would they, what would they tell their kids, their kids and grandkids before they're on the deathbed? Like, what's the most important thing? And I, I, the, the, the beauty about, you know, the craft that you and I get to do is that it's one of the best mediums that there is. Um, it, it is hard to tell what someone's emotions are. It's hard to see what their facial, uh, expressions are when they're saying something which is written. Uh, now some writers can do that very well. Uh, but I can't, uh, but the being able to shoot it and film it and be able to ask those questions to family members or being able to ask, uh, someone that's in the mission field about something that's going on in their life or, uh, talking to a pro about, how they feel when they just won this or when you're with a hunter and, and they just shot that, yeah. how, you know, that experience is nothing like it on a, on a, on a camera. Well, essentially just what you said is, is, is telling a story and conveying yeah. emotion and being the guy behind the camera that can pull as much of that out as possible and tell the you best story it. possible. And that's, that's right. That's an art form in and of itself because you, I'm sure yeah. you've done it. I know I've done it where you film somebody to do interviews and it's like pulling teeth, trying to get them to say anything in a, you know, concise statement. And then you'll film someone else doing an interview. That's like, where have you been all my life? You know, you, they're, yeah. they're doing my job for me. And that's, right. that's a tough thing to do. Yeah. I know like the gentleman, a gentleman that I, I won't mention his name cause he's a professional, but I'd shot with him, uh, recently and he's a brick wall when it comes to trying to get any type of, emotion or fun out of mm -hmm. and i've had to f the the joy of doing what we do as producer as well as, and director is like trying to bring that out of people like a certain part of them that they wouldn't normally share and learning how to do that in the midst of everything while you're also trying to tell the story it, it take it completely changes the paradigm of what the story and how the story is being told and received oh yeah well, I, go ahead love it yeah, I absolutely love it. That's well, that's such a fun thing for me to do. Well, see, I've done things, you know, I've got on projects and done shows and interviewed people that 
I don't know a whole lot about them. So essentially in the interview, I'm trying to learn about them, learn about their personality, you know, mm -hmm. even before or after filming whatever content we had or, you know, being hired to do a job and you kind of, you're kind of going in fairly blind, which whatever research that you could do beforehand, then you start interviewing somebody, you start talking to somebody and they have an incredible story or an incredible um, energy to them or they're incredible on camera or they're very good at conveying emotion and you're, and you, and essentially one person or one interview can change the entire, I guess to use your word, paradigm of the project you were about to do just because of one person or one, you know, one line in an interview that's like, holy crap, I didn't think about it that way. You know, and essentially creates more work for you or me is because, you know, that one person is like, okay, I need to spend a lot of time on this story, a lot of time on this person. And then you have others that you're like, all right, their interview's over with. Thank you, Jesus. Their interview's over with because I'm not using any of that. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> Had a few of those. <laughs> yeah, well, I think we all have. So kind of to, to wrap up, I wanted to talk about one last thing. You know, we talked about it a little bit with the editing. Kind of go through your editing process. Are you a rough cutter? Are you somebody that edits out of your bin? Are you somebody that drags in a ton of footage and just starts cutting? What's, what's your kind of process for Let's say if you were going to do a full-length TV show and you had a ton of footage that you have to take, you know, 10 hours of footage and cut down to 22 and a half minutes. What's your process? Sure. I try to do it in sections as much as I can. Uh, so I will pull in uh, what I know is going to be intro shots or, or introduction stuff, uh, and I'll put it kind of to the side and drop it on the timeline, basically, and cut that down to where um, it's, it's, good and, it's good and done depending on kind of where we are on what we need to get done and how fast. But then, of course, just pick out the meat, you know, really uh, the beginning points, uh, grab, whether it's like a, a teaching moment or whether it's a particular uh, experience, things of that nature. I, I will take that, uh, grab its, its audio content, especially because what's being said, work on the audio to make it where you cut out the uhs and the I don't knows and yep, all that type yep. of thing. and knock that down and then work on trying to either, you know, mix B-roll with it to tell the story or go shoot the B-roll that tells the story of it. Drop that stuff into line, do those sections, do the back end closing statement. Um, of course, um, those are kind of, of course, hand in hand with the intro and the outro. Uh, so I do those basically at the same time. Uh, and then of course, look for the best uh, aerials that I can that tell the best part of the story. Uh, for me, for uh, with uh, with a particular project that I use, I'll, I will grab and try to go through, thumb through those aerials on a separate timeline, mm -hmm. so I'm not clogging up everything. Because that's the other problem is with a lot of our 4K footage. If you don't have a, if you don't have a, a just a smoking laptop or or PC system, you're going to be just absolutely dragging anchor trying to get all this stuff pushed through. Yeah. Um, so and of course, play it back. Oh yeah, playback half res, everything else, trying to make it work. Yeah. But anyways, I'll normally uh, do it in sections for me, um, and depending on the edit, like if it's a long, like you said, like a twenty-two minute piece, I'm gonna grab what I know works already. Like if I'm, like you said, that nugget that really changed the dynamic of how this whole show's gonna go, um, I will grab it and work around that central point, mm -hmm. and then kind of go out from there. And work backwards and, just, and forwards, yeah. Yeah, because it, it, like you said, like some well, you know, a story. Sometimes you want to tell the story, but the the story tells you how it's going to tell the story. Yeah. And you get into those things, and it's it's a it's a it's a tug of war sometimes, 
uh, trying to make it work and go, nope, that's not it. This is what it's going to be. Yeah. How do you and, handle uh, How do you handle music? Do you pull a bunch of music before you start editing, or do you pull each song as needed? Basically, for me, I will like if I know that I have a particular genre, like for instance, with the Bass Pros TV show, we had thirteen shows, and we had around three segments to four segments per show, and so. I would go ahead and pull for each segment. The, if, say, for instance, I'm over, I'm over show 13, right? Mm-hmm. I'm going to pull everything that I know within the correct genre because the producer also is going, the head producer is going like, hey, we're going to do uh, country rock this whole season. So go look for it. And so you have to go through that process when I was doing that with him. But for now, with me, I really just... I grab what I feel like is, is more most appropriate to what the story tells. Mm-hmm. And sometimes like I was doing a fishing show for um, a gentleman that's from California and country rock just didn't feel right. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I went and I went and, you know, basically went through the process of finding the, the music that I wanted to present to the, the, the head producer of the show and go, Hey man, I tried this on this side with the way you wanted to do it, but man, I just feel like this, really gives life to who this guy and his character and what this show segment is really about. And it's kind of like you said, it's, it's per, it's per edit a lot of times. Yeah. And you, you go find that music that fits that because I think it's easy to want to slam everything into one music genre because it just is the way that your story goes, but there's always creative ways to get back to that yeah. sound. Well, there's no, yeah, like, there's no right or wrong way to do it. It's like you right. said, a lot of time it's just how it feels. It does, does it feel right? Does it match? the show flow, the show concept, the character's personality, the situation. There's so many different things. But the thing is music, to me, music and spending money on really good music is a great investment for a good production because music can make or break a production, in my opinion. Oh, absolutely. You know, and I've been using a guy lately uh, to design music for me. Uh, his name is Colton Jackson. He's he's based out here out of Springfield. And he and I will have a session together and I, we look at the footage and just kind of listen to the story, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and try to come up with what's going to honestly build the sound that we want, uh, based on the fact that he can make it. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, his budget's not terribly high, but man, it's been super helpful, uh, in trying to get things out the door and done well. Um, the other trick that I do when I, I'm trying to find music is, and it, this kind of goes back to the production the producing side of things is, if I have time, if I can build in some time on the actual shoot, I will literally go sit out and just listen to what's going on around me. Listen to the environment that I'm in, whether I'm in a, I'm in a, out in the middle of the hunting woods in the middle of spring uh, doing turkey stuff, or I will go out uh, and look around uh, to the common bars or what music's going on for that area. And I, I like that where I'm, I'm kind of a purist in that way where I like to hear what that particular area, what that particular uh, story is telling me, because it's part of it. It's part of that guy's DNA that he likes this kind of music because he's in this area. Well, he's immersed himself. And he may himself. even put it on the radio. Yeah, and I'll, Im- I'll, yeah, yeah. He's, I'll try to find it. Yeah, he's you know? immersed himself in it, surrounded himself with it. So that's you know that's inherently part of the story. Yep. How long would you say it would take you to do a full episode of a show if you had to guess? Like, how much time do you allot to edit? If you're editing 13 shows per episode, how long do you allot to take to edit something like that, start to finish? Yeah, usually it's typically two to three weeks that I will try to do that, depending on on how much time that I have mm-hmm. uh, on that show. And and sometimes that's long for people. Like sometimes they need it done in two weeks, and mm-hmm. that's you know that's the budget that that does it. But typically 
just kind of where I'm at in my particular skill set. It also may be taking me a little longer. Um, and then, of course, there's well, that's a typical TV show. But, mm-hmm. of course, there's 30-second, one-minute spots or, you know, two-minute little product videos that take nothing. It takes two hours, you yeah. know. But yeah. telling the story, can it can take two to three weeks just depending yeah. on what it is. Yeah, yeah that's, um, that's generally how long it would if – I, if I'm going to budget to do a, a full show, I'm going to budget two weeks per ep. And then you've got to look into it. You know, one of the questions I ask when somebody asks me, you know, well, how long is it going to take? I'll be like, well, first of all, how many cameras are there? You know, if it's a single, yeah. if it's a single camera, you know, one yeah. guy, one hunter, one guy, one fisherman, you know, that show is going to go together a lot faster than if it was two cameras yep. or two cameras and a specialty guy or three yep. cameras on a, you know, a big production. You know, those, you know, there's three cameras filming for five days on a elk trip. Oh, four, four yeah. like Lee and Tiff's will be four cameras, um, you know, during their elk seasons. You know, luckily I didn't have to do any of those, thank God, because I don't think I could have done it. Um, right. That was that was always Nate's Nate's job is when there was multiple cameras. He was always the guy that could tell the story the best because he's the best editor I've ever met. I hope he never hears that because um, <laughs> uh, we always used to aggravate him, but he knows he knows he's as good as he is. But um, it's one of those things to where you start dealing with multiple cameras that you're yeah. having to, you know, first of all, you got to scrub through and figure out what it is. And that's another thing is if you were on the shoot or not, you know, if yeah. I have to edit something that I wasn't there for, well, I've got to learn the footage first, you Absolutely. know, and that takes a day or two sometimes just to watch everything through. Um, but if I was there or I did it myself, I know what I've got. I can, I can trim that edit time, you know, by 30 to 50% just because I was on site. And, that, you know, I try and explain that to somebody because now I know what happened. I know what was there. I know what I've got to work with. I know what I don't have. I know the highlights. I know, you know, day two, nothing happened. I can pretty much skip over day two, you know, that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. it's one of those things. But you have somebody like I, I go and shoot a show and I hand it to you. And if I don't have great notes and great, you know, field notes and, you know, have this outline lined out for you, well, guess what? You've got to watch through everything and figure out what happened before you yeah. can before you can start making the first cut. So, but yeah, it's a... I, if if I had to budget one right now, it'd be about two weeks. That's how long I'm going to take to do it. Yep. Well, dude, I, I really do appreciate it. Um, thank you for taking time out of your day and hunting morels to, <laughs> to, to come on and talk to me a little bit. Absolutely. Caleb, thank you so much for the invitation. And it's been awesome to hear your podcast over the last couple of weeks. I've been listening to it and uh, just learning a ton. So thanks for sharing with us. Well, I appreciate it, man. Do you have a, where can people find you on social media, um, website for your media company and all that good stuff? Sure. You can check me out at KhalilMedia.com, and that's K-A-L-I-L media.com. Uh, you can honestly get a hold of me through uh, any venue and avenue through that website alone. Um, but, yeah, I'm available and love to tell someone's story if they if I had the opportunity to. Sweet, man. Well, I, I do appreciate it, man. And um, for the rest of you guys listening for the podcast, if you're here and you've heard the podcast for the first time, you probably heard me talk about our social media and our website, but it's everything is at Redneck Tech Podcast. At Redneck Tech Podcast is our Instagram, rednecktechpodcast.com, and uh, Facebook page, Redneck Tech Podcast. And if you go to YouTube, you search Redneck Tech Podcast. It's pretty much pretty daggum easy to find everything. Um, we've got the gear the gear page up on the website with all the stuff that I'm currently using and stuff that I recommend. And you go right there, and it's pretty much everything linked to Amazon. So if you want to buy things, it's right there in the you know in the little box. Just click it, and it'll take you to the actual product that you know I'm running, and a lot of others are running. 
Um, I'm still working on details on the camera school. It's kind of changed because some guys couldn't do some dates and everything else. So the camera school is still open. If you're interested, keep emailing me. I've got, I don't know, six or eight guys wanting to come right now, but really getting everybody's schedules together is a huge pain. And my schedule is pretty crazy until the summertime, but that's when I'm going to be in um, what we consider editing hell, um, doing a bunch of edits during that time. Cause I don't have a whole lot of shooting is not, not a whole lot's going on, but still working on that. But, um, anyway, if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate and review and we will see you guys next time. <laughs>